today we are beginning an important new section of the book of Exodus and really Scripture in general, namely chapters 32 through 34. Now, because we're going to be in this section of Scripture for at least the next month, maybe two or three if I'm being honest, I want to give a brief introduction so that we understand its importance. It begins in chapter 32 today with the breaking of the covenant in the golden calf incident. The Mosaic covenant is broken before the proverbial ink is dry on the covenant. It'd be like someone committing adultery before they receive their marriage certificate in the mail. Moses is about to give them their covenant documents even before this chapter, and yet before they can receive the covenant documents, they break the covenant. The rest of this section through 32 through 34 basically deals with the fallout of the golden calf incident. We're told of God's punishment of Israel. We see also, hopefully, Moses' intercession on Israel's behalf and ultimately God's forgiveness and his gracious renewing of the covenant in chapter 34, and it ends with Moses going back up for another 40 days. That's where it stops, and that's where it will end. And so, even though it's only three chapters, it's a very dramatic and rich three chapters. It has astonishingly low lows, as we shall see, but also breathtakingly high highs, full of the riches of God's grace, um, particularly as we'll see when, when Moses asks God, show me your glory. And we have this beautiful declaration of God and him showing Moses his goodness as he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock. You know, we often, or at least I used to think of that passage kind of in a vacuum. I had perhaps even heard some people say that Moses was prying into the things of God and kind of being too speculative and navel-gazing. It's not what Moses is doing. He's actually asking that God give him assurance that his glorious presence will go up with him and Israel into the promised land. So we'll see it's a beautiful picture of God's assurance and his faithfulness to his people. And so it's a, it's a short few chapters, but very, very rich. Furthermore, as we'll see, I printed my sermon front to back. Sorry, I, I was like, I should run back and do this because I'm not intelligent enough to just flip over one page after the other. But we'll see. You have to bear with me today. Furthermore, we'll see that even though these three chapters, they kind of almost seem like an interlude, almost like a sideshow in the the larger overall narrative of Exodus at this point, which is basically the tabernacle. That's kind of the whole point of where this is going. That's where Exodus ends. And so this kind of just seems like a blip on the radar. Yet in the rest of Scripture... Chapters 32 through 34 of Exodus loom very, very large. One of my professors uh, in seminary wrote a cool book. Uh, The idea is cool, and it has a cool title. It's called Echoes of Exodus. The point of his book um, is that with Exodus, as many other books in Scripture in the Old Testament, you see echoes of themes and pictures that begin there and just kind of go and continue to echo and reverberate throughout the rest of God's revelation in Scripture. We could say that these next three chapters that we'll be studying, at least for the next few months or so, 
we can say that they echo particularly loudly throughout the rest of Scripture. How? Well, in many ways, what happens here, particularly Exodus 32, is paradigmatic, paradigmatic of the long history of Israel. If you want the Cliff Notes version of the rest of what Israel's history is going to contain, you don't have time to read the whole book, give me the Cliff Notes, the golden calf tells you just about everything you need to know about what will take place. It's astonishing how much what happens here will repeat itself in Israel's history. For example, you probably are aware that in their long history, worshiping the Baals and the god Molech, but particularly the Baals, will be a constant temptation and a thorn in the side of the people of Israel. It starts in the wilderness, we see in the book of Numbers, and it really doesn't end until basically the exile. More than a thousand years, probably, right? It's, it's a long story. Did you know, however, that those ancient pagan gods, the Baals and Molech, that they were actually represented by their pagan worshipers as bulls? Did you know that? And furthermore, when we speak of the golden calf, the term in Hebrew is probably not, re- it's not really a calf, it's a young bull. So it's a young adult bull which is exactly how the Baals and Molech were also represented. Furthermore, in what would eventually one day become the northern kingdom of Israel, golden calf worship is not just done in secret, it is instituted as the state-sponsored religion. In fact, it's very interesting. We're told in 1 Kings 12, hundreds of years later, after God gives Jeroboam the northern kingdom, as punishment for Solomon's own uh, idolatry, right? Again, idolatry in the north and the south. Jeroboam becomes afraid. Why? Because the worshipers, even of the north, still have to go down to Jerusalem to worship. And so what is his brilliant solution? We're told in 1 Kings 12. Jeroboam said in his heart, now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, the son of Solomon. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt almost verbatim the words that Aaron uses in our own passage. And so sadly, although there's spiritual ups and downs throughout the history of Israel in the northern and southern kingdom, yet in many ways, Israel never really changes from the picture that we see of them in Exodus 32 with the golden calf, even down to the time of Christ and even the time of the apostles. It's very interesting. In Acts 7, When Stephen is having his confrontation with the Jews, he basically recounts their whole history to them, and then he says this very biting condemnation, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your father did, so do you. Why is that interesting? The word he uses there, stiff-necked, sclerotracholoi in Greek, Parents, if your children aren't listening, just call them sclerotracholoi. 
Just the sound of the Greek word will get them to listen to you. It will be enough. That word, stiff-necked, occurs almost, almost exclusively to describe Israel in reference to the golden calf incident. We'll see it occur in Exodus 32 for the very first time in Scripture, in Exodus 33, in Exodus 34. We won't see it again until the rebellion and golden calf incident is uh, described again in Deuteronomy, once in a non-related issue in Proverbs, and then here with Stephen. What I think Stephen is doing is he recounts their history and says, you never change. He says, you stiff-necked people, you're the same people now as you were at the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. And I think they knew exactly what he was saying, which is why they so viciously attacked him. He's basically saying this is the whole history of Israel. Stiff-necked golden calf worshipers. And so what we will see, what we will hope to see in the next few weeks is just more and more echoes of this all throughout. Very important passage in the book of Scripture at large Well, that's my basic introduction for chapters 32 through 34. Now let us consider our passage for today. If you notice on the order of service, today's sermon is titled, The Doubt of Idolatry. The Doubt of Idolatry. It will basically be the first installment of what will likely be maybe two, maybe three more sermons, which look in... uh, look into the golden calf incident to see almost a play-by-play description of the nature and effects of idolatry. It's very interesting. Paul, in Romans chapter 1, when he gives his very well-known, very hard-hitting description of idolatry, right? he describes it, do you know he actually makes reference to the golden calf incident by some of his quotes? And actually, some of the things uh, that, that are described in relation to the golden calf incident, that, that is like paradigmatic for idol worship in general for Paul. Very interesting. Listen to what he says. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You're probably familiar with that passage. Did you know that's actually a quote from Psalm 106, verses verses 19 through 20? They made a calf in Horeb, which is Sinai, and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. For Paul, if you want to get down to the nitty-gritty of what idolatry is, he uses that verse there, exchange. That's the heart of idolatry. How? Well, not only do you exchange the glory of God for a dumb idol, you exchange the truth of God for a lie, but furthermore, exchange is also a description of what happens to the worshipers of idols. How? Well, an exchange takes place in them, according to Paul. They have a normal mind, now they have a debased mind. They're given up to all kinds of passions. And you see, Paul used this word throughout Romans 1. So when he says, and their women too exchanged natural relations for unnatural, that's all still connecting as part of the effects of idolatry. And Paul sees in Exodus 32, the golden calf incident, 
in many ways, a paradigm of idolatry at large. Well, what I want for us to do then in the next few weeks, the way I want us to approach the golden calf incident is to see it as a play-by-play breakdown, an intimate look at the inner workings of our own hearts, of our own flesh in terms of idolatry. And we want to do so that we may take heed, that we not likewise fall into idolatry. And let me just say this. I think we often think of idolatry sometimes exclusively in terms of worshiping something that's not God. That's true. That's not an incorrect decision. That's not where idolatry starts, though. It starts much more subtly, as we will see today. And I would say, this is why I chose this first, it starts with doubt, with not trusting God. You see, the worship follows the trust. You worship what you trust. And so, yeah, idolatry is worshiping something that's not God. But what happens before you worship it is you place your trust in it. And so we will see um, today, it's much deeper than that. So if you think, I don't have any overt idols in my life, it's much more subtle than that. it's, It's the sproutings of the heart in looking and trusting anything that's not God alone, okay? Well, let's turn now to our text. I know it's a longer introduction because I'm giving the introduction for this larger section. Let's look at our text now. We will see that all idolatry begins with doubt. And we'll notice first, doubt's dependence on what can be seen. It's dependence on what can be seen. Second, we'll see, ironically... But although doubt is a dependence on what can be seen, it is also a radical, willful blindness as well to what can be seen, ironically. And then lastly, we'll look at the time when doubt often strikes so that we may take heed. So beginning in verse 1, which is our only verse for the day. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Uh, Verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain... The people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Here we see the first thing to note about doubt, that Israel's doubt, as with all doubt, is a dependence on what can be seen says when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down. Moses had been on the mountain at this point for 40 days and 40 nights, as it says later. Um, Now, in my mind, I don't know, I just automatically do this. When I hear 40 days, I think four weeks. It's actually much longer than that. It's almost six weeks. It's almost a month and a half. So it's been a month and a half since they last saw Moses, the man who led them out of the wilderness. I've read some people who have argued that during this 40-day period, Moses would come down every evening and rest and then go back up in the following morning. It seems to me actually elsewhere, Scripture implies Moses was up there the whole time. In fact, it seems that by virtue of being so directly in the presence of the living God, Moses did not need to eat or drink 
perhaps even sleep, though we're not told that directly. He later tells Israel, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So they hadn't seen him. He hadn't come down for a break. I forgot something. Let me go back up. They hadn't seen him in almost six weeks, and they're starting to get nervous. What if something has happened to him? Perhaps around week three, somebody muttered, and he said, shh, don't say anything like that. Maybe around week four, they start to wonder even more. What if God consumed Moses after he entered the cloud? He is, after all, an all-consuming fire. By week five, this perhaps led to even more fear and speculation. What if he doesn't come back? What if we're waiting here for a few more months? We are in the middle of nowhere. What am I going to do about my, my family, my wife, my children, my flocks? We need to do something. We're in the middle of nowhere. How are we ever going to get to the promised land if he doesn't come back? And so they say at the end of verse 1, As for this Moses, we do not know what has become of him. Now, was Moses gone? No. Had Moses died? No. Had God abandoned Israel? No, none of those things had happened. God, uh, I'm sorry, Moses, in fact, was right there on top of Mount Sinai as he had been the whole time, even when their faith was strong. So what happened? Well, they can't see him. Therefore, they fall into doubt because doubt is a dependence on what you can see, on what you can feel and experience through the senses. And if you can't, if you can't see it or hear it or feel it or touch it or smell it, it must not exist. It's part of the nature of doubt. This is why doubting Thomas is called doubting Thomas. Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Right there is the essence of doubt. Faith, on the other hand, is not opposed to sight. It's not opposed to what can be felt, but neither is it dependent on those things. That's the important operative word. Faith is not dependent on what can be seen. The author of Hebrews says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen or not seen. Whereas Paul describes faith, looking to Jesus in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for us, an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And listen, as we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It's kind of ironic the way that Paul says that. If you, I think we know that so much, we just read through it. But he says, we see unseen things by faith. We look at those things that can't be looked at. How? Because faith is a sight of the heart. It looks past, beyond what can be seen with the eyes, beyond what can be felt with the hands, and it looks beyond those to God. While doubt can't get past those things, it can't go further than what it can see 
and what it can feel, what it can taste. And so is Moses here. He's there this whole time. They're going to Aaron. And yet the people being dependent on what they can see begin to turn from God and ultimately to themselves. And because they are dependent on sight, what is their solution? To make a God they can see. Oh, the flesh is so comforted by that. Oh, I'm so comforted. I know my God is here. You know how? I can see him right there. The flesh is comforted by that. But it's not real. Brothers and sisters, you and I are often so, though we have faith by the grace of God, we've been redeemed, we're not abject pagan idol worshipers, yet so often we are dependent on what we can see, on our earthly resources, and we look no further. The Lord uh, really convicted me of this in an interesting way. Um, my own tendency to, to rely on basically all other means first besides God. Uh, I shared this with the Wednesday prayer meeting a while back, um, but I'll share it with you now. I was reading through the Gospel of John, and I came to the passage in John 5 where it says, After this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And when I read that, it struck me as kind of a funny potentially even rude thing that Jesus should ask this man. Of course he wants to be healed. It says Jesus knew he was an invalid for almost 40 years, and where is he hanging out? At the place where invalids hang out to go to be healed. Do you want to be healed? Of course he wants to be healed. Why would Jesus ask this question? Follow the text. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. George Hutchison says in his commentary, It is our great weakness that our hope and expectation of help and relief goes no further than the outward means that we can see. For this man hath only his eye upon that known help, and by his response to Christ, the man shows a desire that Christ would show him that kindness which others had neglected, but little doth he dream of that which was in Christ's heart. Listen to what Hutchison says there in the end. By the man's response to Christ, he shows a desire that Christ would show that kindness to him which others had neglected, meaning the man is thinking, this will be the guy to put me in the water. Finally, I have someone who can help me so I don't get cut in front of in line. What this reveals is he's still thinking in terms of outward means instead of understanding Jesus is not reliant on the water. The question Jesus asked was not, 
Would you like me to take you down into the water? But do you want to be healed? I think about that, brothers and sisters, a lot. I think about that um, when it's Friday and I still don't have a sermon. I know I share this with you all the time. This is like my weekly, weekly travail. Um, and it's Saturday and I don't have a sermon. I start getting more anxious. And then it's Sunday morning and I got to really come up with something because you people pay me and Reuben is going to be really mad if I don't come up with a sermon on Sunday morning, Right? And I wonder, and I'm all stressed out like that, what would Jesus ask me? Would he ask me, would you like a sermon? Would I like a sermon, Jesus? Of course I would like a sermon. It's Sunday morning. But what kinds of excuses would I give him? Yes, Lord, I'd like a sermon, but I've read all the commentaries, and I don't find anything helpful, and I can't find any good analogies or illustrations or metaphors or anything to have a sermon. And I feel like Jesus would say to me, that's not what I asked you. I didn't ask you if your commentaries were useful this week. I didn't ask you if you have any stellar illustrations. I asked you, would you like a sermon? Because commentaries, as useful as they are, are not where I am supposed to look first and foremost for that sermon. It's in reliance on the Lord. What kinds of questions would Jesus ask you this week, brothers and sisters? Even today, perhaps, as you sit here in the pews. Would you like to have this bill paid that you're all super stressed out about? Yes, Lord, but I don't know where I'm going to get the money from, and our savings is already very low. I already have a million other bills that I get, keep getting calls from collections agencies from, and I can't get any more hours at work. That's not the question I asked you. Would you like me to provide for you to pay this bill? Would you like energy and strength, oh Christian housewife, to wrangle your unwranglable children and to take care of the house? Yes, Lord, but I haven't had any good sleep this week. The little one keeps getting up so early. I have so much to do. I'm already exhausted, and I feel like I'm going to crack. That's not what I asked you. I didn't ask if you got good sleep last night. I didn't ask you if you had a small to-do list. I said, would you like energy to accomplish your tasks today? Stop thinking in earthly terms and look to me. I give you all you will need. Notice also, interestingly here, Israel says, As for this man Moses, we do not know what has become of him. Don't we often find very similar words coming from our own mouth when we are full of doubt? I don't know how I'm going to get through this week. I don't know where we're going to find the money to pay this bill. I don't know how I'm going to make it through today. I don't know what I'm going to preach on Sunday. What we really mean by that veiled language is I don't think God's going to provide for me this week. You see, faith knows where all those things come from. Faith knows where the money's going to come from to pay bills. It knows where the energy comes from to seek your day. It even knows where sermon comes from. 
Maybe not the nitty-gritty of how it will come to you, but it knows it ultimately comes from God. But if you're dependent only on what your eyes can see, you'll never see those things. That's the first thing to notice about doubt. It's a dependence on sight. The second thing to notice about doubt is that ironically, though doubt is dependence on what can be seen, it's also a terrible willful blindness to all the evidences and proof which can be seen and which point us in the direction of God's faithfulness. What I mean by that is that even in those moments when we mutter in our hearts, I don't know how God's going to provide, we are surrounded by all kinds of evidences and proofs that God is in fact in that moment providing, has provided a million times before, and will continue to provide. But you see, doubt is never satisfied with proofs and evidences. It's a willful blindness. This is why Jesus never performed miracles on command for the Pharisees. For example, we're told in Matthew 12, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. You see, up to that point in Matthew's gospel, do you know how many public signs Jesus had already performed? In Matthew 8, for example, he heals a leper, he heals the centurion's servant, he heals Peter's mother when she's sick, and he heals the demon-possessed man. In chapter 9, he heals a paralytic, he heals the woman with the issue of blood for 12 years, he raises a little girl from the dead, and he heals two blind men, and yet the Pharisees have the audacity to say, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you, but Jesus won't give it. Because he knows they're asking in doubt, and they're not really interested in signs, though they say they are, because doubt is a willful blindness. In our passage, that's exactly what we see with Israel as well. They are doubting God's provision and faithfulness when they are surrounded quite literally with evidence of his provision and faithfulness. For example, as they come to Aaron, up, make us gods who shall go before us. They're all standing under the shade of the pillar of cloud as God mercifully protects them from the heat of the sun. And surely not for any of those 40 days did they go without it, nor without the pillar of fire by night so they could see. Furthermore, they have quite literally indisputable evidence of the presence of God with them as they look and see the flaming fire on top of Mount Sinai. Furthermore, surely for not one of these 40 days had God failed to provide manna to eat. That means that the very day they came to Aaron and said, Up, make us gods who shall go before us, they did so with bellies full of manna that God provided the night before in which they had picked up that very morning. All of this, into the, in addition to the fact, um, it's very fascinating how doubt even, it doesn't just blind you to the present evidences of God's faithfulness, it twists and corrupts 
his faithful history to you as well. Notice they mention the Exodus. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Oh yeah, the land of Egypt. When God brought you out by destroying the greatest nation power in that part of the world at the time, when you saw him with your own eyes part the Red Sea, when he brought water out of the rock and gave you dove and manna to eat, all those things in the Exodus, you're just going to pass over those now? Oh, that Exodus thing that happened, right? Furthermore, listen to how they speak of Moses. As for this Moses... There are academic papers written just on that phrase alone. It's actually very interesting. I don't know the technical term for it, but it's a way of speaking that is common to many languages in which we are putting distance between ourselves and someone else. It'd be like if I said I was sitting there drinking my coffee and this Dennis character, whoever he is, walks in. You know that... Dennis Guy, he does whatever Dennis guys do, putting distance. I don't really know him. As for this Moses, wherever he came from, whatever he does, no longer the Moses who God sent to be our deliverer, the Moses who patiently bore with our rebellion and all of our stubbornness in the wilderness. He's now, as for this Moses, doubt twists your interpretation of God's past faithfulness and doings. You know, as I thought of this, you know, there's been times when I've muttered, when I'm so frustrated with God, and perhaps you've done this as well, where you go, you never helped me. Have you ever done that? You never helped me, God? <laughs> That's the heart of doubt speaking. It looks at past history and go, yeah, there's no faithfulness there, nor is there any faithfulness now. Doubt does that. Brothers and sisters, don't we do the same thing in so many ways? We doubt God's provision and faithfulness when we are in fact surrounded by evidence of God's past and present faithfulness. We lament, I don't know how God's going to provide as I sit in my house that God provided with electricity and internet and running water and air conditioning and a phone that God provided as I go to drive in my car that God provided to my job that God provided to get my paycheck that God provided. But all of a sudden, I don't know how God's going to provide for this. Or we say, I don't know how I'm going to have the energy to make it through today. When you said the same thing the day before and the day before that. And in fact, your whole life up to that point has been you saying, I don't know how I'm going to make it through today. God helping you make it through that day. And the next day you say the same thing again. If you're anything like me. This is why Annika just kind of smiles and laughs when she sees me stressed out with a sermon. Because what's wrong? I don't know what I'm going to say on Sunday. You're still doing that thing? You got, okay. She just smiles. I'll pray for you. You're going to be okay. I've seen this happen mm, last week. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, if we would take our eyes off of this world and put them back on God, then with fresh faith, we would see we are surrounded by 
by signs abundant of God's provision and faithfulness. I think of the story, I think it's in First or Second Kings, when the uh, army, the king of Syria, comes to kill the prophet Elijah. His terrified servant sees the army and he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? It says, Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes, the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. If we look to the Lord and pray, O oh Lord, open my eyes to likewise see, you will see you're surrounded by proofs and evidences of God's faithfulness. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, next time you find the words coming out of your mouth, I don't know, dot, 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 stop yourself. Think, how many times have I said this before? I would even encourage you to write down as many as you can remember. Do a little mental exercise. You will find you don't have enough paper and ink to record all of them, and you will think, no, what am I doing? (laughs) He will be faithful again. The last thing to note briefly about this doubt is that it often, as it does here, strikes when the hour is late and rarely when it's early. You know, a seasoned long-distance runner knows that the first half of the race, perhaps even the first three-quarters of the race, that's not really the hard part. It's the last home stretch. That's the hardest. That's when you have to stay focused, keep your mind on running. In baseball, they refer to this as the dog days of summer. Have you ever heard of that? Do they have a term for that in Spanish with baseball? I was like, los días de los perros, but I don't know this. They refer to that in baseball. It refers to the hottest and muggiest part of the baseball season around August, long after the cooler weather at the beginning of the season when everyone was fresh, there were no injuries coming out of spring training, things look hopeful, and then people fall apart. And there have been so many baseball seasons where a team that was favored, oh, this team is going to go all the way, they just fall apart during the dog days. Why? They can't focus. They lose focus. They lose cohesion. Who knows what? But it's the dog days that are the hardest stretch. So it is with faith, brothers and sisters. The temptation to doubt grows stronger the more time passes. So it is with Israel here. They were in the home stretch. And you know what? I have to kind of say, for people who are pretty much largely unregenerate, they went pretty long. It went almost six weeks, which, if you know anything about the history of Israel, wow, all right, not bad for you guys, you know. Um, Moses was coming down the mountain that very day. This could have turned out entirely differently if they had just pushed a little bit farther. They could have seen Moses come down. He would have said, look what I have, these testimonies of the covenant. Then I, let me tell you of everything that God has, has shown to me, and it would have been amazing. Right before the end, they choked. So also, brothers and sisters, some of your greatest temptations to doubt your Lord and to turn to yourselves or to something else will come when the hour is late. 
That will be when your faith is tested. And whether or not your faith will stand or fall will come down to one simple thing in that moment. Will you keep your eyes fixed on the Lord or will you finally give up and say, no, God helps those who help themselves. I need to look to myself. That's what makes or breaks the situation. We are in need, therefore, of endurance. Endurance, brothers and sisters. Perhaps it should not surprise us at all, then, that in the book of Hebrews, a great book about faith, after chapter 11, the hall of faith, the author of Hebrews not only calls his uh, listeners, one of his main exhortations is to endurance, but he does so as he likens Christian faith and the Christian life to running a race. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How then do we run the race with endurance? How do we make it through the last home stretch? Two things. First, laying aside every weight or sin that clings so closely putting aside everything that will distract your gaze from looking at Jesus. And the second thing, the main thing, verses 2 through 3, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endure such uh, from sinners such hostility against himself so that we may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Now here, when it says we are to look to Jesus, we are to look to him partly as an example. That's part of what we're to take away from this. But it's much more than that. And it's not even the main thing. Jesus is not just the one who endured that we are to look to but he's also the author and perfecter of our faith, not just its example. John Owen comments, The Lord Jesus is not proposed here unto us as a mere example to be considered by us, but as him also in whom we place our faith, trust, and confidence. Without this faith and trust in him, we shall have no benefit or advantage. From his example. And so, he concludes, Owen concludes, the foundation of our stability and faith and profession of the gospel in times of trial and suffering is a constant looking unto Christ with expectation of aid and assistance. That's what Israel should have done. I don't know where Moses is, but we need to pray. Because it's day 40, and just so you know, they weren't told how long he would be up there. We're told, we are told that. We know that's how long he was. They weren't told that. What they should have done is gotten on their knees and prayed, Lord, we don't know where Moses is, but we trust you. You will send us aid and assistance. They didn't do that. They looked to themselves with their own brilliant solutions, which led to idolatry, which led to all kinds of 
dark exchanges within their own souls. If you fix your gaze on Christ, Christian, the author and perfecter of your faith, your faith shall endure even though the hour be late. Fix your eyes on Christ. Let nothing distract you. Well, this is the first part, brothers and sisters, of our look at this paradigm of idolatry with the golden calf. We'll see more. Um, We'll see a lot more sad things as we look in the next couple weeks. That is it for today, though, the doubt of idolatry. May we take heed. You may not have any overt idols in your life, but your soul, the flesh in your soul, still has sproutings that look to trust to anything other than God. And that trust will lead to worship. I would encourage you today for a Lord's Day meditation. Ask yourself, what kind of question would Jesus ask you today? Just as he asked the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And what kind of excuses do you tend to give to that question? And how can you answer differently and take your eyes off of earthly means and look to Christ? Take time to consider today with your family and friends which evidences all around you of God's faithfulness have you been blind to, past or present? The more of these you look at and count, the more you will find. And lastly, let us simply do now the only thing that can really cause our faith to endure, which is to look to Christ by faith, to cast ourselves on Him afresh, to say, I believe, help my unbelief, Lord Jesus. When we do so, we shall receive fresh endurance to run the race to the end. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we confess that although we might critique and legitimately do so the people of Israel in this chapter, yet how many times have we found our own actions, the actions of our heart to be the same? the words of our heart to be similar. Oh, Father, would you help us to look to Christ? I pray for any, Lord, whose faith is weak today. By your Spirit, Lord, would you strengthen their faith? Would you give them hope and joy? Give them the hope that you do indeed give aid and assistance to those who look and you never fail. Take the blinders off their eyes, Father, that they would see all your, all your manifold blessings and faithfulness around them. We ask all this in Jesus' name.